and welcome to the Institute for Government's first annual conference, Government 2023. I'm Hannah White, and I'm director of the Institute, and I'm really delighted that you're all joining us here today in line or, or online or in person um, for what we're hoping will be a really brilliant day of speeches, uh, questions, and debate. And I want to extend our special thanks to Grant Thornton, who are sponsoring the conference today. We're hoping to make this an interactive event, so please uh, don't think that you're just going to get to sit there all day. Please start thinking about what questions uh, you want to ask. If you're online, you can start sending in your questions as soon as you like, uh, and tweet along with the hashtag IFGGovd23. Uh, so we're looking forward to a lively discussion. And we will have a video and sound recording of the event today up on our website uh, shortly after the event. So I want to kick off with uh, some remarks about why we're holding this conference, what 2023 may have in store for UK government, and what our priorities are going to be here at the IFG. I was delighted to take over as director uh, here in October, not just because the Institute is such a unique and important organisation uh, with a brilliant team, but because I think this is such a consequential moment for UK government. It's a moment of challenge, that hardly needs to be said, but it's also a moment of opportunity for government, for the opposition, for the civil service, but also for people like us who have lots of ideas about how government could work better. The stakes could hardly be higher. The UK is teetering on the brink of recession after a year of political turmoil, with households, businesses, and public services all struggling with a cost-of-living crisis which has seen the biggest fall in household incomes in generations. We have Rishi Sunak, the fourth Conservative Prime Minister since 2010, seeking to make a fresh start, and we have Keir Starmer seeking to make a case for a Labour government. Both have the prospect of a general election coming rapidly down the tracks, having to be held before January 2025. And both have to convince their parties that they can get elected without selling out on past promises, although these were made in a vastly different context. There's a risk, as I argued in a paper which we published last week, that these circumstances will conspire to make 2023 a wasted year for UK government. And why do I say that? I think broadly for four reasons. First, because there's a risk that the impending election will promote short-term thinking. There's much to be said for finding short-term answers to some of the acute problems facing the UK, to public sector pay disputes, for example. The public's crying out for those to be addressed. But there's no getting away from the fact that many of the acute problems we face are simply the current symptoms of chronic problems that cannot be quickly solved. Equipping the NHS to meet the demands of an ageing population, for example, is a job of years, not months. And that's why we welcome the Chancellor's announcement of an independently verified workforce plan for the NHS, which is something that we've been calling for for years. But there is a risk, I think, that this year is spent fixing symptoms rather than the underlying causes of the problems we're facing. The second reason I say that 2023 may be wasted is that the politics behind Rishi Sunak's ascent to, prime, to being the Prime Minister may make it hard for him to achieve the goals that he's set for himself. His ability to meet those goals will be shaped by the attitude of his backbenchers, and many of them feel that they now face the prospect of losing their seats if Labour's poll lead uh, translates into electoral victory. 
So many of them, understandably, are more interested now in thinking about their constituents than in supporting their new leadership. The third reason why this risks being a wasted year, I think, is that the impending uh, election may prove a disincentive to the sort of cross-party uh, working, which in some, in some situations has proven to be essential uh, in finding solutions that stick to intractable policy problems. Take pension reform, for example. That's not to say it can't happen. The Climate Change Act was passed with cross-party support two years before the 2010 election. But the prospect of such cross-party work, which is vital, I would argue, for issues that we're facing today, like the situation in social care, will require a level of political cooperation we just haven't seen in years. And the fourth reason I think 2023 risks being wasted is that the political context ahead of an election may prove a disincentive to the important business of government reform. We've observed here at the Institute a loss of momentum uh, behind the delivery of the government's declaration on government reform, which they launched in 2021. And we're going to continue to track progress against the declaration, but it's not yet clear how committed the Prime Minister is to that agenda. And we think the lack of energy behind the government reform agenda is a serious problem because the need to improve and strengthen the civil service has only grown over the two years since the declaration was published. As our forthcoming Whitehall Monitor report will show, 2022, with its rapid succession of prime ministers and ministerial merry-go-round, provided possibly the least propitious circumstances for effective government. Distracting ministers, and limiting the civil service's ability to make progress as priorities lurched from one objective to another. Civil service morale has been sapped by low trust relationships with politicians and depleted by public criticism from ministers to which civil servants have no public right of reply. The sacking of permanent secretaries called into question the impartiality and permanence of the civil service with destabilizing consequences. But the problems of the civil service do not all stem from politicians. Its reputation was dealt a severe blow by the implication of officials at the highest levels in Partygate and a lack of visible leadership in dealing with the consequences. The civil service goes into 2023 with record levels of turnover, a long-standing problem that has been highlighted by the Institute, and with declining morale. Meanwhile, public trust in government continues to be alarmingly low, a subject I'm sure we will hear more about later today. We believe that the events of the past year demonstrate the importance of reinforcing the responsibility of the civil service to steward government capability, policy advice and expertise. In 2023, the, government, uh, the Institute will continue to argue that we need to sort out the confused accountabilities between ministers and civil servants by putting the civil service on a firmer statutory footing and improving its accountability to Parliament. In recent years, a continuous cycle of crises has dri driven reactive and short-term policymaking by a generation of officials who have little experience of working differently. Having arrived during the rapid expansion in civil service numbers after 2016, which followed the austerity-driven cuts from 2010. Our work in 2023 will continue to focus on the process of policymaking looking at systemic policy failures, such as asylum and obesity, but also at policy successes. 
Having identified how problems in the working of the centre of government have contributed to crises and failures in recent years, we will also be looking systematically at how the centre of government should work. We will dive into the work of government departments, including the Treasury and the Home Office, and we will return to our previous work on net zero. The civil service is now being directed and scrutinised by a generation of politicians of all parties who have never seen government operate in any other mode. The third of MPs who joined the Commons at or after the 2017 election have only seen government operating in the exceptional circumstances of Brexit and the pandemic, and parliamentary scrutiny severely constrained. And that's one reason why this year we're launching a new IFG Academy, which will bring together all our professional development work to equip politicians and civil servants with the skills and expertise they need to better fulfill their, their roles in government and to help people outside government to understand how it works. And building on our long-standing analysis of the state of public services, we'll undertake new work on the conundrum facing the NHS, why it is struggling to translate extra staff and funding into shorter waiting times and waiting lists. And in the light of both parties' focus on regional economic inequality, we'll look at the next steps in the English devolution process and how the map of mayoral combined authorities can be completed. And I'm sure we'll be hearing more about that from Lisa Nandy later. 2023 need not be wasted. Rishi Sunak needs to focus not just on achieving his chosen policy goals, but on demonstrating that he can deliver the wider outcomes that electorate cares about. This means making his government operate as effectively as possible. Laying the groundwork for such reforms would not be a purely altruistic goal. It would also create short-term wins by equipping government to better spot and solve problems and handle crises, by addressing the frustrations of ministers of a government machine that doesn't always deliver as well as they would wish, and by challenging public disillusionment with government and the prevalent narrative that Britain isn't working. And Labour too needs to think about the how as well as the what of government. If the party wins the next election, it will need a clear view of how it wants government to work as well as what it wants it to achieve. The problems the UK faces are severe and pressing, and the first priority of government and opposition should be to frame serious responses to the NHS, energy and cost of living crises, and to the associated pay disputes that have led to widespread strikes. But the job of government must go beyond managing crises. Sunak and Starmer face a series of political choices about where to spend their energy, time, and in the Prime Minister's case, public money ahead of the next general election. Both have started to signal the choices they want to make in their New Year's speeches, but both need to do more to flesh out their commitments. And neither should neglect the significance of government reform in enabling them to deliver on all their policy promises and to make progress on long-term change. That should be the central goal of any serious party of government. Thank you. Now, I've got a fantastic panel here waiting to discuss all of this in our first session uh, and much more, I hope. But first, I'm delighted to invite Dave Dunkley, CEO of Grant Thornton, to make some introductory remarks. Thank you, Hannah, and good morning, everybody. Uh, absolutely delighted to be here supporting your first conference, and it's great to partner with someone like IFG 
we have so many shared values and, and shared aspirations. It's great to be, to be here presenting today. So today we've got the chance to bring together lots of insight from business leaders, public and private sector, to really, what's our job? To challenge and give constructive feedback to some pretty senior politicians and decision makers. As, as Hannah, as you said, there is a big crisis going on out there that's affecting just about everybody. If you look at our business, who's it impacting? It's certainly impacting our people on a day-to-day -day basis. It's impacting our clients, and it's impacting the communities we work in. There's barely a day goes by where we're not, as a partnership, talking about whether it's a cost of living crisis, affecting lots of our people and clients, supply chain issues, whether it's governance, access to skills, particularly around data that we need to continue to grow, or broader issues all around ESG. These are huge issues affecting the UK, and probably beyond that, many of them affecting the much broader global economy. So it's great to be here as a firm, taking our part. It's part of our DNA. As a partnership, we are 100% committed not to be standing on the outside, throwing stones. It's, if there's a debate to be had, we'd love to be part of it. I'm not going to pretend to know all the answers. Of course we're not. But it's our role, we think, uh, as part of our business community to be here expressing our views and being part of that debate. And for us, the public sector is also part of our DNA. It's about 10% of our business. So roughly six, 700 people at any given time are working in the public sector and insurance and advisory. So it really is important for us, for our people to be here and to be part of this debate. And for me personally, our strategy at the firm is all about creating the best environment for our people. We are a people business. So making the most inclusive environment you can. And you think the issues we're talking about how can, we, how can we play our role in combating those so people who come and work with Grant Thornton feel safe, feel supported, and feel like it's a position where they can thrive and grow and create the skills that we need in the future? The other aspect of that is smashing down barriers and creating opportunities. How can we attract people into our workforce, into our profession, which five, ten years ago wouldn't have dreamed of a career at somewhere like Grant Thornton? whether that's for our school programs or our asylum program, which we are desperately proud of, is providing opportunities for people who just simply wouldn't get them. So that's all I want to say. I'm standing between you and the panel. I guess wish you all a really successful conference and plea. We have a new year upon us, new ideas, perhaps some old problems, and today let's see what progress we can make. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you, Dave. We have a full panel. <laughs> By the so I'm delighted now to turn to our first panel event of the day. And, and we're going to be looking, uh, as I did in my opening remarks, at the challenges facing government in the year ahead. And as I have already said, we've got a fantastic uh, panel here to discuss uh, these questions. We have, belatedly, have, but just in time, uh, Sam Friedman, who works at the uh, Department of Education as a senior policy advisor to Michael Gove. Uh, between 2010 and 2013, has held a number of other leadership roles in the education sector and is a senior fellow here at the IFG. We have Aisha Hazarika, who is a Times Radio presenter and a former Labour advisor. Paul Johnson, director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. And Chloe Smith, who has been Conservative MP for Norwich North since 2009 and has held a number of ministerial roles in the Cabinet Office, in the Treasury, and most recently as Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. So we're going to begin with a discussion uh, between me and the panel. Uh, 
Then we're going to go to questions from the audience uh, in the room and also online. So as I said at the start, please do start sending in your questions, thinking up your questions, and we will come to those. Uh, the code for this Slido for those online is hashtag IFGGovd23, so the same as the Twitter hashtag. Somewhat unfairly, Sam, I'm going to start with you. <laughs> what would you say, and uh, you get a blank slate here, having not heard my, my comments at the start, what would you say are the biggest challenges facing government uh, this year? And maybe, maybe not the same thing, but what should Sunak prioritise? Well, um, based on my experiences this morning, transport policy would be a good place to start. <laughs> um, apologies for being late. The Piccadilly line did for me. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, it's almost an easier question to say what's going well right now and what, what doesn't, he, what doesn't uh, the government need to worry about. Uh, we're, we're in a situation where we've got considerably poorer as a result of arguably government policy, but also external events over the last few years. There is now a big fight happening as to where that pain hits, whether it's in the form of higher taxes, whether it's in the form of worse public services, uh, lower pay for people working in the, in the public sector. And that's the kind of high-level background to everything that's, go that's going on at the moment and all of the problems that the, that the government faces. Um, my feeling is that, the, 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 that Sunak and, and Jeremy Hunter are, are, are very focused on the next election already, even though it's 18 months away. They're trying to think about how they kind of survive and do as well as possible at that election. And they've decided that the economy is naturally very important to that. They want to be able to show an improving economy, thus the sort of core of the five pledges that Sunak gave. Um, and they want to be able to use that to maybe do a tax cut, maybe do some spending pledges closer to the election. My, my worry is that they're not appreciating quite how bad the state of the public sector is right now. Um, and even though obviously we all know there's a big problem with the NHS, I don't think it's registered quite how bad that problem is. Um, and, and, and that it could be worse next winter quite easily unless something quite dramatic changes during the course of this year. Um, and you can sort of, I think NHS is the worst sort of case across the public sector. But if you look at you know, schools, we, we've got teacher strikes announced yesterday. If you look at the transport, transport networks, if you look at crime and the number of crimes that are being prosecuted through the courts, everywhere you look, you've got this sort of decay happening and this sort of worsening of the situation. And I am just very worried that if the focus is on sort of getting to an election in 18 months, by the time we get there, um, uh, things are going to be in a, in a really, really bad way and, and will be hard, even harder to recover than, than they already are. So my worry is that, is that I, would, I would really like to be seeing Sunak prioritising uh, the state of the public sector more and worrying a bit less about party unity, which is obviously a big preoccupation for him, uh, and, and a bit less about sort of setting up for the next election. Happily, that does tally with what I said. Good. That counts. That counts. <laughs> um, and just to follow on from that, I mean, one of the things that I think was so damaging about the last year uh, for effective government was the churn we saw in, obviously, in, 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 in the prime ministers, in ministers, um, and the destabilising effect that that had on the civil service. I mean, it was a sort of the worst possible case study of something that we've talked about for a long time here be, being an issue. How significant do you think a sort of renewed sense of stability will be for 2023 for government, but also, I think, for, for business and, and so on? Yeah, I mean, stability is obviously critical, and last year was a disaster on that front. Um, I personally don't think there'll be any change in 
leadership this year. I don't think we're going to get an election this year. I don't think Boris Johnson is going to come back. Thank goodness. Um, so I think that um, we are going to have a year where everything feels fairly stable. But the problem is you've got to do something with that stability. It's not just having it. You've got to use it for a purpose. And, and, the, and the worry is we're going to have this kind of stasis almost when nothing really happens for a year and a half um, uh, because everyone's going into an election mode. And, and that's my worry is we'll get the stability, but we won't get, you know, you'll have the foundation being rebuilt, but then nothing on top of it. Paul, can I come to you next? A predictable question for you, really. But in terms of economic challenges, what, where do you think the government's going to have to focus? Is it, is it going to be continued inflation? Is it going to be uh, the, sort of the economic impact of having, ha having to settle pay disputes in the public sector? What are, where are the crunch points going to come? Well, yeah, it, 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 it's all of those things. Um, I mean, Sam set out the, uh, the fundamental economic problem very well, which is we're all poorer and actually government dealing with that is really hard as we've seen through what they've been trying to do. And you know, there is not much, in fact, there's nothing really they can do to stop us being uh, poorer in a year's time than we were a couple of years ago. And that's just really, really tough. But just to sort of lay out sort of two or three specific things, I mean, 2022, about this time last year, I was saying that I thought that the biggest challenge facing the government over 2022, I mean, it turned out there were lots of strange things happened in 2022, but uh, the biggest thing I thought would be, they'd be struggling with would be public sector pay, because we knew by February, March last year that inflation was already at 7% on, on the way up, and the spending review being set on the assumption that uh, inflation will be 2 or 3%. Well, in that world, it's really, really hard to um, you know, keep public sector pay anywhere near in line with inflation. And we've seen that, seen that again in the figures today, where uh, public sector pay was lagging way behind private sector pay, which was itself lagging behind um, inflation. Uh, the real pay cut for teachers and nurses and so on over the last year is about 5%. That's on top of about an 8 or 9% real pay cut since... 2010, it's not surprised they're pretty fed up. Um, uh, what I don't see is kind of what the government's strategy is going to be to settle those disputes. I can't see the strikes ending without some movement on the government side. Equally, um, if government were to offer everyone in the public sector an inflation uh, matching pay rise, that's going to be costing them 12, 15 billion pounds. That's on, on top of what they've got at the moment, which is a genuinely significant amount of money. So that's clearly. Um, number one. Num number two, which the government's very focused on, I think is going to be a real struggle, is this issue about re reduced um, size of the workforce. Again, we've, we've heard a lot about that. We've got half a million or more fewer people over the age of 50 in work than we had a couple of years ago. But de dealing with that's going to be really hard. First, most of those people moving out of the labour force have done so voluntarily. They've got, I mean, they're all pretty much all outright homeowners they nearly all rely on private incomes, pension savings, partners, earnings. There's not an enormous amount government can actually do to shift that dial. And then there's a big increase in people who are long-term sick and out of work. They're a long way from the labour market. Again, moving them in is going to be tough. So uh, it's pretty clear from what Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt have been saying. They're very focused on that. I think they're going to find that really um, quite tough. And then I think the third sort of set of issues is you know, around the public finances and the questions that Sam was asking about whether we're going to get some extra spending or some tax cuts. My guess is that in March and possibly in November, when the Office of Budget Responsibility comes back with its next set of forecasts, they might be a little bit less gloomy than the ones we saw in November. 
energy prices are, are down a bit. Interest rates don't look like they're going to go quite so high. But remember, Jeremy Hunt actually, despite all of the rhetoric, set a, by conservative standards, by the standards of the last 13 years, a really quite loose fiscal policy. It's the first time, other than the sort of weird trust quarting thing, it's the first time since um, 2010 that you've had a conservative chancellor actually saying, I'm, I, I'm not even going to get to current budget balance. I'm not even going to just be borrowing for um, uh, investment by the end of the forecast um, period and barely getting debt down by the end of the forecast period, which is one of the Rishi Sunak's five pledges actually a few weeks ago that debt would be coming down. So he hasn't left himself an awful lot of room for manoeuvre. I think he's hoping, probably with some you know, justification, that things will start to look a bit better when he gets his next sets of um, his next sets of forecasts. Very interesting. And one of the things I argued in my paper we put out last week was that public sort of perceptions of what government is for have been changed by the pandemic, by the energy crisis, and these massive programmes of, of, of support that uh, the government's had to bring in. Maybe there's an, there was a sort of, uh, you were alluding to that a bit in, in, your, in your final third point there, but how do you think that's changed the room that politicians have for manoeuvre in terms of the economy? Well, I think there is a, I mean, I think there's inevitably a concern that, I mean, government waded in with so much cash during COVID, and actually I think that's one of the problems we're, we're suffering from at the moment in some, some ways, and um, has made some quite big promises on energy bills. That clearly leads the public to think, well, or could lead the public to think, well, look, you know, government can, you know, why aren't they giving money to the nurses and the teachers and so on? Why aren't they doing what needs to be done um, on the NHS? And, of course, the truth is... Um, that uh, you know the, the fundamental laws of fiscal policy and economics haven't been um, rewritten, as we saw back in September. If you kind of do something completely daft, then you will uh, you will suffer the consequences. So I think there may be, um, and I don't know. Sam will probably know better than I do whether there's polling on whether there's a, a change in public um, attitude. But there's a, I think there there, there, there may there, there may be some concern. Public is expecting more, but equally. Um, it's not unreasonable to expect a functioning NHS and a functioning Piccadilly line and, uh, and so on. And, and government isn't um, delivering that for reasons that I think are quite, are, are really not straightforward. I mean, there's clearly an issue of resource in the NHS, but it's not just resource. I mean, if you look at the resources in the NHS, there, there are, there's more money, there's more people uh, than there were back in 2019. And yet, at least until you know, last month, it was doing less. Um, the reason that waiting lists have been going up has not been because people have been joining them, just fewer people have been coming off them again until last month. So there are, there, there, there are bigger problems than money here. And I think if, if, if government is failing anywhere, it, it, it's almost in the leadership of managerial and running things capacity as much as, if not more than, the money stuff. And that's really hard to talk about because um, it's easy to say, well, look, they've got this much less or this much more money. That's kind of, you know, that's why I do it. It's easy. Um, but, the, um, but the actual sort of the nitty gritty of what it is about the way that the NHS is being run or um, you know, the difficulty of getting people out into social care or the, or, or, the, or the scale of risk aversion in some of the ways that hospitals are run or whatever, that's a much harder conversation to have in public. Um, I'm going to give you the chance to come in because I know that's something yes, you've been thinking about a lot. I was just, I was just going to very briefly interject to say that the project I've just started on for, for, for the Institute is, is exactly on the topic Paul just set up very nicely, which is it's not obvious what's going on with the NHS. Uh, it's not, it, the clearly investment is a big factor, but there is something happening with productivity, if that's the right word, 
um, with a very big increase in, in staffing, substantial increase in staffing, and less happening. Uh, it isn't just about capacity within of beds and isn't just about discharging into social care. Uh, there is something going on, I think, with um, uh, whether it's morale of staffing, whether it's the way staff are being organised or, or the way management is operating within the NHS, that is, is, is causing a productivity issue beyond investment, beyond, um, beyond uh, discharge. So uh, I just thought I'd mention if anyone is interested in talking to us about that, that is a project we've just started working on. Thanks, Sam. Chloe, can I come to you next? Um, Paul referred there to the government's um, focus and some of the commentaries indicating that this may be a focus of, of Jeremy Hunt's first actual budget. Um, this, this question of, of workforce, I imagine it's something that you thought about, a lot about uh, when you uh, were at DWP. It's one of various approaches that the government can take to, to this big question of growth, which of course is the line of continuity between the Trust government and, and the Sunak government. So, so what do you think the challenges are there and, and how difficult is that going to be for the government? This is definitely one of the challenges of 2023. I think there's, there's no doubt about that. Uh, you look at it from a business perspective um, and actually, you know, the inability to recruit or retain or to do so enough is, is without doubt one of the biggest issues that big businesses report. So this is a bona fide blocker to growth and therefore needs that attention. Um, but I think also actually it carries some sincere points about human tragedy, human waste of talent, waste of opportunity. This is not just a numbers game. These are uh, millions of people who's, uh, who are not getting the opportunities that they are capable of and that they want and that, that, that could be brought about. So it's absolutely a right priority to look at both sides of that and, and do the right things about it. Um, the statistics that we see today, the, uh, we meet on the day that the labour market statistics come out for fellow labour market geeks uh, in the room. Uh, you've, I think, got at least two of those on the, on the panel here. Um, you know, they, they tell this continued story of uh, that tightness in the labour market and the problem of economic inactivity that Paul uh, touched upon. Uh, now, this was a, a major focus that I took uh, when I was Secretary of State, but I'm actually feared by the time I also spent as Minister for Disabled People, Health and Work. And that is because what businesses will have to do in the year ahead is look to pools of untapped talent. They'll have to put in place the right support and the right approach and the right attitude uh, and the right respect uh, for what workers now want, because actually this is not, uh, this is not only a one-sided market. Um, but there is uh, every opportunity there to, to bring more people into opportunity. And that's, as you say, a real theme running through growth. Um, I set out in the Times last month, actually, 10 things I think government and business could do together about that. So there is plenty of, uh, plenty of, of, of things to think about for the Prime Minister uh, and others. Um, going on to a second point, if I may, I think the Prime Minister has, has been right to set out the five priorities that he has. Uh, and also from the point of view of running government and you know, in my experience of having run the biggest department in government, you do need to set out priorities very fiercely and stick to them. So it's right to take a prioritised approach in the year ahead. Um, I think he's, he's particularly right to, to focus on inflation, of course, um, also the NHS, which has now been touched on by the panel, uh, but also the point about immigration and small boats. That is actually a serious uh, one and it's something that constituents will talk about every day of the week. It is a big priority uh, for people and it rightly has its place uh, in uh, Rishi Sunak's list. If I may, the third point actually responds to some of the things you, you set out uh, at the outset. And it's the idea of whether this year is to be a wasted year or not. 
Now, I think I'm the one on this panel that has experience of having been elected. I, I'm going to uh, embrace that role today and say that actually there is an argument for elections and for the run-up to elections. It's not only a wasted year. Civil servants don't run the world. Uh, very good though they are, uh, there is an absolutely important role here for politics and the process of democracy. And the year before an election is one where the right kind of leaders can uh, achieve progress towards long-term solutions that work for citizens by setting up the license to make that change, by gaining buy-in to big ideas and then gaining ultimately the mandate for doing so at an election. Now, I've um, uh, lived, uh, lived and breathed through five elections. That's perhaps, uh, perhaps a few too many. But, you know, at each of those, you see that process in operation and it's a really fundamentally important one. Um, you also made the point, Hannah, about the idea that politicians, uh, that, that MPs might, uh, uh, you know, have the audacity to focus on their constituents uh, in, in the period before an election. And, and I will just draw on, you know, long-standing constitutional experience here. That is one of the major tensions that rightly is at the heart of how we do it in Britain. And it's no bad thing to listen to your constituents and to be able to channel that into uh, what, uh, channel that into the level of buy-in that will be needed to solve problems of the magnitude that we're touching on today. I think that's absolutely right, of course. I, I, th I think the point I was making was about the difficulties that may present for the Prime Minister in progressing his legislative programme. I think we have seen uh, backbenches very willing to, to come together and, and to say to him, actually, no, we don't think these are the priorities of our, our constituents. And I think in terms of his ability to, as you say, progress the big ideas that he wants to put forward ahead of the next election. Do you feel that, 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 you know, that, that that's going to be as straightforward as it might be for other prime ministers, you know, new prime ministers coming in with more than two year uh, sort of track ahead of them before another election? Well, you're, <clears throat> you're right to point to this, this, this um, uh, you know, that, that particular challenge that faces uh, a prime minister who, who, who takes office partway through a, yeah. a term, doesn't have the immediate benefit of, of having gained the, the mandate that I was just uh, making the argument for doing. So, so Rishi occupies a particular uh, space that, you know, that, that has its challenges. I mean, I think there is uh, scope for some really good work to be done in Parliament this year. Um, actually, we, we meet also in quite a hefty legislative week itself. We're doing the online uh, safety bill later today and, and other quite significant bills this week uh, alone. There'll be more to come. I think you touched on uh, pensions, actually, your, yourself. And, and, you know, of course, we await the, you know, the, the review from the Baron, uh, Baroness Neville Rolfe's work and, and um, uh, other inputs, you know, that will, that will give rise to big arguments that are ripe for legislators to scrutinise. So, so there's big stuff. I think, it's, uh, I think there is the, the scope to have some cross-party agreement, if, if that can be... Uh, handled uh, uh, correctly and, and openly and constructively, um, uh, but you but you are right that, that, that those those tensions apply. I think consistently in the you know in, in this stage of any parliament. Aisha, coming to you. Um, politicians were already facing the challenge of having to communicate with voters about some of the sort of long term challenges facing uh, the country. Uh, things like weak productivity, uh, demographic change. But I think recently we've, well, not only recently, but there can be a tendency for, for politicians not to confront those conversations. Do you think that's something we're going to see before the next election? 
given how these things have come to a head with the long-term trends and the confluence of very short-term critical issues? I think we're already starting to see that happen a bit. I think what's been really interesting over the trajectory of the last few years in, in politics, you've seen both the Labour Party and the Conservative Party being captured by people who, who were just basically saying, you can have it all here as your sort of political fairy tale. We definitely had that with Jeremy Corbyn, which was have everything you want, don't even think about the cost of it, have everything you want. Then we had sort of Boris Johnson again, just promising everything to everybody. Then, of course, we had the absolute disaster of Liz Truss and Quasi Quartem with, with, with the mini budget. And of course, we're beginning to see the, the reality of, of the fallout of COVID. So I think that the mini budget in particular and watching the sort of Boris Johnson administration sort of implode, I think that has given politicians permission to now actually say, well, look, this is what happens when you do promise everything to everybody. And actually, there are consequences to, to, to all of this. I mean, interestingly, one of the, probably I think the most interesting thing that, that Rishi Sunak said when he did go up against Liz Truss and lost, amazingly, was he said that we can't have political fairy tales, we can't have fiscal fairy tales. And then, of course, we had the mini budget. So I think what we're seeing now is you have got politicians who are saying quite unpopular things at the moment. If you look at Keir Starmer, for example, there's been a huge amount of criticism saying, oh, he's not actually come out and, and said that much. But what you are seeing from him and Rachel Reeves is a very different you know, body language from we saw from the Jeremy Corbyn days and indeed some of the Boris Johnson days, which is everybody, you can have everything you want. You know, Keir Starmer is actually saying, and by the way, getting a lot of flack from people on the left. You know, he's getting a lot of flack as well from people in public services because he, he and Rachel Reeves are saying, look, we aren't going to be able to do everything we want. We are not going to be able to give the unions everything they want in terms of, of pay. We're not going to be able to do things um, as quickly as we want. So I think there has been a sort of correction from that period of, listen, have what you want. I mean, Paul's point's very interesting. I've taken note of it in terms of just, you know, the, the, the question that many people are saying, look, what did the government do during sort of COVID? Was there too much money spent? You know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, we are learning there's no such thing as, as a free furlough now either. And there are very difficult expectations to manage that the country did get used to seeing the state step in. And many people would argue that is a good and uh, an important thing, but nothing comes for free. Everything has a cost to it. And I think you are seeing what's interesting about having Rachel Reeves against Rishi Sunak, um, Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves against Sunak uh, and Jeremy Hunt. The argument is not between two groups of people promising everything the earth. The argument is sort of between two centrist dads sort of saying, look, you know, we've all got to be incredibly, terribly sensible now because of what just happened. That image. Um, two centrist dads over the dispatch boxes. Um, <laughs> what a joy. <laughs> and in, term, in terms of Labour's approach, we've heard a lot about the, the challenges facing the country. Where do you think Labour will or should focus its attention? There's obviously a number of different ways uh, it, it could go. And... What do you think, obviously, Labour's poll ratings are currently very good. We've seen poll ratings can change significantly uh, quite quickly. And so, you know, if there are two years to go to the next election, we don't know where we'll be. 
What do you think is the, the case that Labour needs to make to the British people in order to, to, to make the argument that they should be the next government? Well, I think the Labour Party is always haunted by um, the issue of economic credibility. Now, again, Liz Truss absolutely gifted Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer an advantage, an advantage that you know they were they were so fighting hard for, but they probably wouldn't have got had you know Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng not messed up so spectacularly. So they have been handed this. Um, precious, precious gift of right now you are seen as being quite economically credible, but they know how difficult that is. I think Keir Starmer and his team around him know that actually these poll leads are pretty soft actually and they will narrow come a general election. If Labour doesn't move the needle in Scotland, it makes you know the, the rest of England all the more difficult. There is quite a difficult coalition for the Labour Party to, to win. I mean, the polls are looking good, but there is a very difficult sort of coalition. So I think, you know, one is reminded of that brilliant cliched phrase, you know, said of Blair's opposition, time in opposition, that, you know, Labour in opposition has to sort of, as it, you know, gets towards government, it's like carrying that priceless Ming vase over a highly, highly polished floor. And I think that is the sort of sentiment that looms large in the leadership of the Labour Party. I think they're very much <coughs> approaching it with a sort of safety first message. Um, the spectre of Labour under Jeremy Corbyn is still fresh in people's memories. They're very, very centred on being very disciplined on the economy. Look, it may be that they almost overcorrect on that and they may risk the ire of people going, well, hang on a minute, what is the difference between what you're offering and what uh, Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt uh, are offering? And, and you know, that feeds into a you know, are they going to have the vision and the inspiration that, let's say, Blair did in that run-up to, to 1997? But I think their approach right now is very much sticking on the, the economy, climate change as well, tucked in with their sort of green economy and um, plan, their Green New Deal that, that they want to do, and very much a sort of fixing Britain narrative. But they are at pains to see that doesn't necessarily mean opening up the checkbooks. Yes, we've heard that loud and clear. Okay, I think we will move to questions from the floor uh, and online now. Um, we'll have a roving mic circulating in the room. If you're sitting next door, do just come and stick your head through the door and we'll come to you. I will take questions in tranches of two or three. Please wait for the microphone and uh, say uh, who you are and where you're from uh, so people can understand that. Uh, and as I say, if you're online, do continue to use Slido. So do we have any questions in the room? None in the room. You're all still asleep. Okay, well, uh, fortunately, everybody <coughs> online is, is, is awake. So I'm going to start with a question uh, from, from Greg Rosen, which I think is probably um, would be good for you to kick off with, Chloe. Uh, and he says, how can government solve parents dropping out of the workforce without tackling the failings of childcare and social care? And unless it does sort that, how can it get the economy going? Great question. Yeah, absolutely central, central question, because uh, from a technical perspective, you know, within this figure of nine million people who are economically inactive is a large group of people with caring responsibilities. So those two points from Greg are, are absolutely uh, on the money. Um, and I think the answer is that the government does need to do both of those things. Um, uh, Childcare is a matter that's had, you know, a bit, fair bit of attention, you know, in sort of cutting in various, in various ways recently. I'm of, the, I'm of the view that actually we do need to take a 
thoroughgoing look across the different strands of, of childcare policy that, that are out there. I'm a parent of a six-year-old and a three-year-old at present, so I should declare an interest. We are using childcare. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and it's complex. Uh, and, and, and I don't think that's fair on parents, and I think there's, there is definitely reform uh, possible there. Uh, on social care, this is, I think, an example of something that, that you know, would continue to require uh, cross-party support. I think it is a matter of regret in the in the last uh, few years, in the last um, in the last parliaments plural, uh, that we've not got that over the line, um, and I think we will need to I think we will need to revitalise those plans because they're absolutely essential on a really human level. Thank you. I just wanted to make a point that actually there's a lot of similarity between the problems in childcare and social care. Mm. Um, childcare is the kind of Cinderella bit of the Department for Education. Um, and they focus on schools, that's the, the most, the, 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 what they tend to prioritise. Uh, social care is a Cinderella bit of the Department for Health and they tend to prioritise uh, the NHS. So both have been sort of a bit ignored while, while they've tried to keep the main things they're responsible running. But also both of them are, are, are private private sectors, essentially, uh, publicly funded to a large degree, uh, uh, mixed funding, but, but, but private sector uh, run on the whole. And, and they're dysfunctional. The markets are dysfunctional in very similar ways. You don't have proper commissioning happening because local authorities have responsibility, but no, power, no real powers or money to do it properly, more so for childcare than for, for, for social care. You have private equity that's come in and started buying up large numbers of providers um, some of whom are extremely dodgy uh, in terms of their, 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 their tax affairs, um, but who are all, nearly all very highly leveraged and are pulling public sector funding out to pay for their, uh, to pay for their, to pay for their debt. And then the, see, that's one group of providers of private equity, and they're buying up from very small one-off providers uh, who run one, one nursery or one social care provider who are slowly aging and going out of business and selling, selling up to these private equity providers. So you actually have a very similarly dysfunctional market in both sectors, same with children's homes as well. It, 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 the, the, there's, there's sort of a lack of desire to engage with the fact that we are spending very large sums of money um, and we will need to spend more in both, of, both childcare and social care because of the problem your questioner asked um, over the next few years, whilst, whilst having incredibly dysfunctional markets where we're, where we're giving a lot of money to, 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 to fairly rapacious organisations. So there's a, there's, a, there's a sort of almost cross-government job there to look at reform of these bits of the effectively public sector that are privately run. Yeah, the dysfunctionality of these markets is really uh, is really important. I mean, they've grown up in a kind of really random way. It's one of one of the many things that makes social care incomprehensible to anyone trying to use it. Uh, but it's also one of the things which means in the childcare market we actually spend perfectly respectable amount by sort of European standards on childcare, but it seems with very poor. Um, outcomes, and that's at least one of the reasons. I, I think it's important to be clear on this, the, the question about getting people back into work. Um, it, 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 to, to, to put the sort of issue in a kind of very broad brush terms, if you look over the last 20 years or so, it's not actually women who aren't going, going to work, it's men. I mean, the, the, there are more women in work still than there have been. There are still fewer men, certainly, than there were 30 or 40 
um, years ago. And then the childcare issue mostly, uh, whether rightly or wrongly, affects women. The other thing it's worth saying is, I mean, my children are a lot older than yours, Chloe, but you know, when, I, you know, when I had small children, I spent a fortune on childcare. But that is not the typical experience. The median amount spent by someone, uh, parents with children under five, is zero on childcare. So it is, it is an issue for um, you know, people like us, frankly. Um, now, you, you, part of the reason you know, maybe they're not spending money because it's too expensive or because um, they're working part-time, whatever, any complete reconfiguration of childcare policy would make a difference to that. But I, th I think it is important to be clear that the, you know, it's about 10-15% of families who are spending, quote, a lot on childcare. The large majority, because there's a you know, 30 hours free childcare from age three, because there's some support at age two, because there are grandparents and, 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 and other ways of um, doing this informally, because uh, this, this, this and this, Actually, um, people, most people find their way around this. I do slightly worry uh, that some of this is driven by a, uh, by, by a sort of a, a, an important, but, but, but my particular, particular view of, of costs. That's really interesting. Aisha? So I probably have a bit of a pushback to what uh, Paul has just said in the sense that I think a lot of women, and you just said, look, a lot of people get, get by so they don't have to spend the money on it. And I think they do that by mainly sort of women and grandmothers, older women giving up quite a lot of their um, career earning potential or you know, careers by saying, okay, fine, I, I just won't go, go to work. And I think what we never quantify in these figures and statistics is the sort of unpaid labor that a lot of, and it is women, it, sometimes it's older men, grandpas as well, but actually it is women that, that are giving up a lot. And the, fig the figures don't really sort of catch that. And I think it is a source of great frustration, whether it's social care or child care. For a long time, women have, and feminist, feminist economists have been arguing, make this part of the conversation about infrastructure, because we always just think about infrastructure as you know, nuclear and, and, you know, George Osborne with a high-vis uh, vest and... But, you know, nurseries are, are really important to infrastructure as well. So I do think there does have to be a much broader conversation and talking to some of the people who have... I mean, I remember when I worked for Harriet Harman, we did this thing, the Older Women's Commission, and the amount of time that older women were, were giving up in that sandwich generation as well, looking after their grandchildren, and totally expected to, by the way, not even asked, just expected to, and at the same time looking after their very, very elderly parents as well, getting no financial help from the state as well. And they're women who could also be making a contribution to the, to the workplace. Other thing really quickly is, I think Chloe's absolutely right about trying to get um, more people back into the workplace. Flexibility is a huge part of that. We are gonna have to think about much more flexibility um, as, as, as the world has changed post COVID. But another thing about older women, and it doesn't get talked about a lot, a recent study, a lot of women are dropping out of the men, uh, workplace because of menopause as well. So there's a lot of adjustments and flexibility that if we really want to kind of turbocharge our, our labour force for the good of the economy, but also for their mental health, we know work is good for people on many, many levels. We do have to take a much more holistic approach to it. Very interesting. I'm pleased to say that women's woke, woken up, so we have some questions. <laughs> One in the, have we got the waving mic? Maddie in the front row. David. Yeah, I, I'd like to ask Sam Freeman and Chloe Smith um, uh, this question about care. 
and the National Health Service. Because it seems to me here, there is an absolutely obvious, clear problem, uh, which is we, we're using a lot of National Health Service beds for people who should be in, in care. We know also what Sam Friedman has said, which is there is an absolute scandal about the financing of social care. And that's been going on for some considerable time and it's been uh, used by private equity, which is clearly an absolutely wrong kind of financing for social care. And this goes on and everyone knows it's a problem. And why isn't the government uh, and others tackling this issue? Would you like to say who you are, David? Oh, D uh, David Sainsbury, uh, Chairman of the Institute of Government. <laughs> We'll take a group of three questions. So there's a gentleman in the blue tie here, Mehdi, behind you. Uh, morning, James Jamison, Chairman of the Local Government Association. I'm going to disagree with uh, Sam and uh, Lord Sainsbury. I apologise. There is an element of uh, rapaciousness with care homes, but the vast majority of social care is done in the home by domiciliary care uh, groups. They aren't private equity financed, that's the vast majority, and that's the biggest issue in social care. It isn't care homes, it's getting support to keep people in their own homes, and that's where people are on minimum wage, there isn't enough money in it, and that's the bit that we need to fix. But it also needs the NHS to support it, because it needs com community nurses, it needs GP surgeries where you can actually get an appointment. So I don't want this message going out that there's a bunch of private equity people making lots of money out of social care. That may be an element of it, but the vast majority of social care is provided to people in their own homes, and there is negligible private equity involvement in that. So I do think we need to fix that bit, and that's the bit that really makes the difference. Did you want to ask a question? Or? Uh, I, I wanted to come back, sorry, apologies. So if you cure for the social care, I'd appreciate it, but it's not about private equity. And uh, the gentleman with the purple tie behind you, Maddie. Thanks, and I'm Robert Hazel from the Constitution UCL. I have a question for Aisha about Labour's priorities and whether constitutional reform is one of them because Keir Starmer has now received the report of the Brown Commission recommending quite big changes in terms of revisiting the devolution settlement, in terms of link reform to the House of Lords, becoming a, a chamber of the nations and regions. There's the whole unsolved problem of decentralization and devolution in England. We know none of these things resonate much with the electorate, so it's possible that Labour will be fairly silent on this before the election but what do you think they're going to do if they become the next government? Thank you very much. Okay, so we have uh, two questions about what the real issue is with social care uh, and Robert's question about uh, Labour's attitude to constitutional change. Should we start with constitutional change mm -hmm. to you and then we can come back to social care? Hi, Robert. Um, yes, I mean, I was on Gordon Brown's um, commission and, it, you know, this was worked on for a, for a really long period of, of time, a, a couple of years. And what was interesting about this report is sometimes, you know, you're asked to do a report for, for, for the leader of the opposition and you're kept at sort of arm's length. And this was very, very different. There was a lot of engagement from um, Keir Starmer's office. So I think the, the final report that, that you saw, and in fact, Keir Starmer was very visible at the various launches of this indicate that this is something that certainly we as commissioners and what Keir Starmer said to us and he did attend a couple of our meetings was that they were very um, 
this was going to be a, a priority for them. I think the two things that really stood out, for, actually the three things that really stood out for me, number one, um, significant Lords reform. Now, the language in the Gordon Brown report was very much abolishing the, the House of Lords. I suspect it may not end up being a, a full abolition, but a significant reform of the House of Lords. I think that is something that um, Keir Starmer is very, very keen to do, particularly replacing it with something which is much more reflective of, of the nations and regions. And that's also the kind of the, the whole theme of that constitution report. I mean, some people were saying, are you only doing this and have you got Gordon Brown to do it just to sort of put a sticking plaster on what's happening with Scotland and the rise of, of independence? And it was, it was definitely more than that. The whole thing was about how do you make the United Kingdom feel more cohesive, much many, many more shared values, but also understand the importance of, of devolution, which I think the pandemic really highlighted as well, not only in terms of the nations, but for example, if you look at the the, the profile that Andy Burnham got uh, as mayor of Manchester, also king of the north, as he's now sort of called. But it was really interesting because it sort of brought to light the, the role that a, that a good, active mayor can be. So I think they're the kind of things that shaped us. So definitely House of Lords. In terms of um, devolution, more powers for, for these mayors. You know, we do have, as mayors, a new level of you know, architecture in terms of our local government. And I think one of the things that was felt quite keenly, and we did have a lot of local council leaders who were fed into our discussions, is that for so long, and this is not just the, you know, and the Labour Party is as much to sort of criticise as this, so many leaders have talked about, you know, respecting the nations and regions, and they never really, they never really do it. They never really consult with what's happening at the coalface of local government. And even, you know, Labour had a problem, and I'll be honest about this, not really being very respectful to its leadership, even in areas like Scotland. Joanne Lamont, outgoing leader of the Labour Party in Scotland, famously said, you treat us like the branch office. And there was a, there was a horrible sting of truth in that. And that just applies to how Westminster does see other parts of the, the, the country. And I think the final thing, which I think is a really important part of this package, was devolution, and, and this feeds into what Chloe was, was talking about as well, devolution of um, employment and skills onto a much more local level is so important. You know, we are having these circular conversations about how do we get a better workforce? How do we empower our workforce? Well, you can't do that from Westminster. So much of that is better served. For example, using the power of local universities and local further education colleges, for example, can be out, was up in Scotland doing an event with um, schools. And there's a great example about how a big, big company, a household name, wanted to start a, a, a new site somewhere just outside Glasgow. They weren't sure about where to sort of get the, the skills from. They didn't want to just kind of randomly advertise. They went to their local further education college and actually it was a brilliant result, but that was because that company decided to sort of do it. Otherwise, it would have just been quite bureaucratic. So I think there are lots of good things um, in there, but people... It's not the most exciting agenda in the world, I have to say. I'm just going to be honest. But what I think it's why it's so important is that when, when Boris Johnson said levelling up, that did sound really exciting. And he is a, a great wordsmith, and he did manage to sort of breathe life into a very dry, arid subject area. But what we did see 
was there a lot? There was a lot of kind of buzz about it, but there was no flesh on the bones. This very long document, as typical going, it was meant to be like a ten-point plan. It's like a forty-nine-point plan, sort of thing. But it does attempt to put flesh on the bones of this very important agenda. Are you sure I should say you're at the IFG. We do not find these things boring. <laughs> <laughs> I can't resist uh, the the opportunity just to bring in in Chloe on this question of the Constitution. Obviously, a former minister for the Constitution. Um, Labour's put out, well, the Brown Commission, big statement on Labour's perception of the need for constitutional change. Do you, do you think there is an important agenda around constitutional change at this, at this moment? Is that your conclusion, having seen you know, the events of, of recent years, or do you think there are other things that uh, the Conservative government are more likely to be focusing on? I think other priorities come first. I think that's, that's fair to say. Uh, first of all, a hello to Robert. It's very nice to, to, to see you again. I mean, having, having been Minister for the Constitution under uh, three Prime Ministers, three quite different flavours, with a, also a hello to Duncan. My first stint of that was in the coalition government. So, uh, you know, quite different flavours of, of, of approach. Um, my advice at this time would be to make sure you have a mandate for any change you wish to do. That's absolutely critical, because without that... Um, it doesn't merit its place, actually, when there are so many, other pressing, uh, so many other pressing issues that we've already touched upon. Now, so, so, so the question then is, is you know, do, does that interest and that, that public appetite exist? Uh, I think there may be an argument for uh, seeing it as part of, um, uh, you know, the frustrations, actually, that people do have about a lot of things uh, you know, feeling feeling um, difficult all at once. You know, there is a there is a, a part of that that is about you know, does our parliament serve us? Does our constitution work for us? Um, but I don't think that's a, that translates into a very clear mandate for the full blueprint that the Labour Party has has most recently put out. Um, I mean, a side point here about uh, uh, Scotland. Obviously, again, we meet on the morning of a you know reasonably major constitutional development in terms of how the devolution settlement works. Let's see where that goes. Let's see where debates about uh, independence go there. I think one of the more pressing priorities for government in the constitutional space is actually to get the wiring right, and by which I mean uh, resolving the final issues to do with the Northern Ireland Protocol. You know, that is absolutely fundamental and is a, and is a crucial part of the economic picture uh, right now. The real point, I think, about the Constitution over, over many years, my real conclusion is that you have to treat it as... Um, uh, a, a, a platform on which everything else is built. If you don't have stability in your constitution, actually you can't build anything else. You can't build business success. You can't build uh, happiness, actually, because you don't have the, the foundations on which people need to build those things for themselves. Um, Brexit, of course, showed us this, was the best example in recent years of, of what happens when you don't have that stability. You, you, you know, everything else uh, basically gums up. Um, that said, my conclusion, uh, you know, this, it, it, this could be a subject for debate if we had many hours, but my conclusion on that is, is that actually the British Constitution does remain sound in itself, and I think the evidence base for that is that despite those recent trials and tribulations, you have a lot of folk around the world who still look to the British Constitution as a reasonable uh, and, and fundamentally uh, flexible and effective way of doing things. Well, the IFG is running a review of the British Constitution at the moment, so we'll, uh, you have to wait, wait for our final report in September to see if we agree, agree with you. Sam, Paul, do you just want to come in on this, this question of what the real issue is on, on social care? Yes. So um, 
it's not either or social care homes or domiciliary care. They're both really important parts of the system. Um, at the moment, it is true. There are more people in, in, in hospital beds who need domiciliary care than there are who need social care uh, home beds. Um, so you, you can't sort of say one, one, is, one matters and one doesn't. But there are 400,000 people in care homes, and that number is going to go up a lot uh, over the next 20 years. I mean, we're, we're looking at the cost of social care doubling over the next 20 years simply because of ageing let alone uh, uh, trying to fix it in any other way. So you can't sort of say one, one matters, one doesn't. Um, and when it comes to the care home market, clearly the structure and uh, uh, the ownership of that market really matters. But I think to, to the point about uh, what we need to do right now to, to help deal with the NHS crisis we've got right now, the only thing you can do is, 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 is either rejoin the single market and have freedom of movement again, which is unlikely, or, um, or uh, put pay up. You have to set a minimum pay threshold that is higher than minimum wage, um, and you have to fund it, um, because we've got 165,000 vacancies in social care. There's more vacancies in social care than there are doctors in the NHS altogether. It's crazy. Um, so no wonder the system's broken. And the, uh, given the tightness of the labour market, the only way to resolve that problem is to put some money in uh, and put the wages up. Uh, and that's, the, I think, one of the absolute key things the government has to do to avoid next winter being worse for the NHS uh, than this winter. But then longer term, I absolutely do think we need to look at reform of the market and look at the integration of social care and the NHS. We've got integrated care systems now that are just starting to set up, which creates some opportunity for doing that. But right now, we just need to get pay up. Paul, do you agree with, agree with that? Uh, that all sounds right. Um, I, there's just one thing I'd actually like Sam to look into if he's going <laughs> to the uh, NHS. And it, I don't know whether this is right, but I've been told by three or four people who ought to know that a part of the problem here in terms of getting people out of hospitals into their homes is that there's a very risk-averse and bureaucratic process for doing that, where you have to have a full care plan and formal social care and so on. And essentially, they won't accept assurances from family and friends and so on that people will be looked after. Um, and so I, I guess my question is, um, is there a way of easing this by actually returning uh, expectation and responsibility and trust into people who are not part of the professional social care profession, which happens in many other uh, countries and certainly, you know, the, the, the stories I've been told suggest that this, was, that, that there are, this is one of many examples of over-risk averseness and over-bureaucratisation in the NHS. And I'd be very interested in your conclusions when you well, look into that. The discharge um, process will be a big part of what we're looking at. <laughs> so. Okay, we've just got time for one final question, uh, which I'm going to take uh, an online question from Dave Penman, who asks, do the panel think that the current impasse over public sector pay is a failure of politics or of economics? <laughs> Paul, would you like to start with that one? Uh, goodness me. Well, I, should, um, I, I suppose I should uh, um, uh, mention a, a, an interest here in that my partner is a teacher that, um, uh, who, who will be striking. Um, uh, so, um, I mean, it's both, isn't it? I mean, you know, th there's been a failure of economics, which means that, um, you know, as, as we said right at the beginning of this, uh, we have got poorer as a country. Um, inflation is extremely high. Um, and uh, the, the amount of money that will be required to um, return public sector pay to where it was in 2010 will be really very big indeed. Um, so there, there, there is an economic um, problem there for sure. 
Um, I, there's failure of politics as well. I mean, as I said, I mean, I, you could see this coming a mile off um, in terms of what was likely to um, happen. It's not obvious that government was prepared um, for that. There's been remarkably little flexibility in offering more to some of those groups who perhaps have the most public um, uh, public sympathy and no sense, as far as one can tell from the outside, of um, what the plan will be going down the road. And there, there are flexibilities here. We are in this absurd situation where low-paid staff in the NHS will literally have a higher pension than they have pay. Um, that, I mean, that there's surely deals to be done there in terms of reducing contributions to um, uh, reducing contributions to pensions. This is partly because entirely accidentally, because of the way reform to pensions was done a decade ago, it's turned out to be much more generous than was intended um, at, that, at that moment. So I think there's a kind of failure of imagination in some of the ways that this is being um, dealt with a, a, across the piece. But yes, clearly a failure in economics. I mean, we, we, we failed to grow, we failed to um, you know, deal with inflation, um, and clearly a fa failure of politics in in dealing with these um, in, in ways which even begin to move us towards a solution. Chloe? I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to make life um, any more difficult for the quite delicate negotiations that, that you know, rightly are going on over all, the, all aspects of this at the moment. So, so, I mean, basically, yes, it is both politics and economics, but I'm not going to, not going to go you know, more into what, what, what the political solutions are. The point I'd like to make that I think also helps us across all we've discussed this morning is uh, about the need to look to the international examples at the same time. And you know, the fact is we are not alone in the UK in dealing with inflation, in, in confronting inflation and trying to deal with it. Um, the Prime Minister, as I've already, already said, I think is absolutely right to have that as one of his you know, very top priorities on which he must bear down because that then is the root, you know, the root problem of, of, of this uh, issue as well as uh, many, many others. Um, and you know, I have great sympathy with with um, you know with, with all aspects of that as it affects people's you know individual um, uh, pay packets and and every choice they need to make through the year. So it's right to do that, but we need to look uh, globally at this point as well because we are not alone in having to look at those challenges. Sam, do you want to come? Up? Um, I mean, all of these strikes are different, right? The RMT strike, the NHS strikes. There, there's a different balance of both on the economic side and the political side uh, as to how you approach them. I think it's not, not we shouldn't just pile them all in together. Uh, some, some sectors have better cases than others, um, uh, and the government have different options with some sectors than others. But I have been absolutely baffled by the ineptness with which the nurses and ambulance workers' strikes have been dealt with. Uh, we've got a huge NHS crisis right now, dominant, you know, dominating news cycles. They're not asking for that much, really. I know they asked for 19%, but it has been obvious for a while they would accept uh, a lot less than that. Um, and, uh, and it's been allowed to run on for months. Just, just sort it out. I mean, it is just <laughs> crazy. The politics of it are horrible. Why would you have a fight with nurses, of all people, the most trusted profession in the country? Um, you know, the, the, the actual impact of it is obviously really not helping with the on-the-ground uh, on ground crisis that we have. You know, government, we, we've been talking about priorities this morning. Government is about priorities. Just do, sort this one now. You can worry about some of the other ones later uh, because you've got a bit more time and, and it's not quite such a crisis situation. But, but I, I don't get the politics of it. I don't get the policy of it. It's baffling to me. <laughs> and a final word from you, Aisha. Um, well, I agree with um, you know, what, what's been said. Of course, it's a, a, a failure of, of economics, as so much is at the moment. 
But again, as Sam's very eloquently and very humorously said, I find that the politics, Matt, like, why would you go to war with Pat Cullen? Like, Pat Cullen is such an, she's, you know, I think part of the politics, which is really misjudged, is it does feel the government is wanting to have its big Thatcherite moment back in the 70s, smash the unions, you know, and the unions were a very different proposition in those days. Remember, the union laws now are so much tougher. Back in the 1970s, you'd get a group of blokes together in the car park. They could all put their hands up, and that was like a fully-fledged, you know, ballot strike. That, you know, that's not the way things are sort of now. And I think what I find really bad, particularly because we've just had this very thoughtful conversation where everything leads back. Whatever sector it is, there is a workforce crisis right now. The long-term strategic thinking whether it's care, whether it's the NHS, whether it's our you know, vital infrastructures, that there is a sort of labour shortage problem at the moment. And it strikes me as kind of insane that the way to solve that is by literally going to war with workers and the people who represent them. This kind of demonisation of trade unions. You know, we're not in a Bob Crow era anymore. I mean, Pat Cullen has a lot more hair for a start. We're not in that kind of era. There's a lot more women leading trade unions now. Trade unions are not inherently evil things. They are an important part of, of democratic countries. They're an important part of civic society. The idea, the idea that, that the solution to this is to introduce very draconian legislation which will sack people who want to go on strike. You know, authoritarian regimes, one of the first things they do is they cut back on trade union um, rights. The trade unions are there to be a strong friend at work. That's not an ignoble pursuit. That's not a bad thing. Workers should have some basic rights. We are all workers. We know people who are workers. And a happy workforce is a more productive workforce. A happy workforce will go the extra mile. That is what we all want. It's like we're missing joining the dots up between treating workers well and having productive workforces. Productive workforces are exactly the thing we need for the, the magic word growth that we're all pursuing at the moment. I mean, back in the day, I always remember Jack Dromey, sadly, who died about this time last year, Labour MP, great trade unionist, but then became a, a, a Labour MP. He worked very, very closely with a lot of the big, big trade unions, but he also worked really, really closely with a lot of the big industries like automotive industries. And what often the captain of industry said is that to run a really good labour-intensive shop floor, you needed to have a really good trade union that you had good relations with, so that when things got sort of tough, you could work with the trade union to try and ease things through. And I think this sort of war that we've got between the government and trade unions and workers is really unhelpful to this bigger strategic conversation we need to have about fixing Britain. Thank you, Isha. So I think we've achieved the purpose of this first session, which is to flesh out the, the challenges and opportunities um, for the, the year ahead, possibly more on the challenge side than on the opportunity side. But I think we have certainly established that you know it's not just about the policy ideas it's also about underlying stability it's about getting the the business of, of doing government right um and so i hope you will all thank help join me in uh, thanking our excellent panel And that, of course, is just the first uh, in our uh, excellent uh, agenda for today, the first session in our excellent agenda. Um, for those of you who are staying with us here in the building, coffee will now be served on the landing. 
Our next session will begin at 10.45. We've run over slightly, my apologies. And that will be a brilliant discussion led by my uh, colleague Alex Thomas uh, on civil service in 2023. And just a reminder, please don't leave any belongings in the room here uh, when you go out to get your refreshments. Thank you.